going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. And big thanks to Amber for recommending today's case. This case has a survivor in it, which I think we've only done one other time on the show, which was very recently. Yeah, we don't usually do survivor stories. Yeah, it is nice to see that. And this particular survivor has been very vocal about what happened to her. And it really just adds a totally different element to the story when it can be told by somebody who is actually there and just an innocent, an innocent person amongst the chaos. Oh, absolutely. You know, we cover so many cases where obviously the victim cannot speak for themselves. So it's great to be able to tell and share this story today. Also, I just wanted to mention that if you do have any recommendations for this show, please email us at goingwestpodcast at gmail.com. That's the best place to do it. Yeah, a lot of people still do it on social media, which I totally get, but we cannot get to all of our messages, so we are only checking emails. So if you have a case, goingwestpodcast at gmail.com, that is the place to do it. We have hundreds on our list right now, but hopefully we will get to them all. Unfortunately, there is not a shortage of horrible stories out there. So if you do have something that's local to you or that you're really interested in and you want to hear Heath and I dive into... Send it over. Also, welcome to the holiday season. It's, woo, woo, woo. it's I feel like it's like right the day after Halloween. It just kicks right in, doesn't it? And thank God. Yeah, like I love literally, it. we're driving down Ventura Boulevard here in LA, and there's already billboards for Christmas movies. Yeah, a really good time of year to cozy up and listen to your favorite podcast, aka Going West True Crime. <laughs> All right, guys. Without further ado, this is episode 354 of Going West, so let's get into it. Introducing Bluehost Cloud ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment.
In November of 1973, five teenage friends were attacked while they sat around a campfire at a local state reserve. After killing four of them, the final girl was taken into a van before being dropped off at home, able to share her story with the police in hopes of catching the monsters behind it all. This is the story of Sandra Chesky, Roger Essam, Stuart Beatty, Dana Beatty, and Michael Hadrath, also known as Gitchy Girl and the Gitchy Manitou Murders. Gitche Manitou State Preserve is a 91-acre nature preserve nestled right on the border of Iowa and South Dakota. Though technically located in the northwestern corner of Iowa, the preserve sits on the state line of South Dakota about 20 minutes outside of the city of Sioux Falls, and the name itself comes from a Sioux phrase meaning Great Spirit. Though the park is a magnet for hikers and hunters, it also attracts its fair share of teenagers that are looking for a cozy, discreet place to host a party. Bill Hadrath, who is the older brother of one of the victims we're going to be talking about today, remembered, quote, I was out there myself at one time or another when there was probably around a hundred other kids out there. There were a lot of parties at that place, a lot of beer parties. That's basically my hometown. That's all we did is go out into the woods and drink beer. Yeah, and we see this a lot as well when there's not that much to do or or when you're a teenager. When you live in rural parts of the U.S. You go to the woods. And the Gitche Manitou State Preserve was no different, or at least it wasn't before it became the site of an infamous slang, rendering locals to believe that the property was haunted. On the evening of Saturday, November 17, 1973, before winter blanketed the area in frost and snow, five friends headed to the preserve for what was supposed to be a fun night together. 18-year-old Stuart Beatty agreed to drive the group in his blue Chevrolet van so they'd have a ride out there, and he decided to stay and hang out. Now, Stuart was a senior at Washington High School right there in Sioux Falls and was very well-liked by students and teachers alike, remembered as helpful, kind, and respectful. He came from a large family of seven kids and brought along his younger brother, Dana, who was 14 at the time. Also joining them was Michael Hadrath, who was a 15-year-old sophomore who met Stuart through school. And Michael's siblings remember him as a kind and attentive brother who was always there for them. Now, rounding out the usual crew was 17-year-old Roger Essam, who, like the Beatty brothers, was one of seven children. Roger frequented Gitche Manitou and especially loved to camp, and his mom later said, quote, Roger loved the outdoors. The boys were very good friends, had been all through school. Now, despite their age gaps, the four boys were very close. The Beatty's brother Leland recalled, quote, They were kids that pretty much kept to themselves. 
There were bullies back then too, so it was the four of them that hung out by themselves, minded their own business. Michael's sister Lynette echoed this by saying, quote, They were good kids. But that night was a little bit different because one of them was bringing a date. So Roger had recently started dating 13-year-old Sandra Chesky, who was still new to the area, having moved with her family to Sioux Falls just the year prior, with Roger being her first official boyfriend. So that November night, Stuart stopped at Sandra's house to pick her up, and then the five of them headed to a secluded campsite in Gitche Manitou, just planning to light up a bonfire, play some guitar, and share a joint or two. Sounds fun. Right, so it should have been a really nice, routine Saturday night. But early the following morning, a couple out for a drive stumbled upon a gruesome discovery. On the morning of Sunday, November 18th, 1973, a local couple was out test driving a new car through the back roads of the park and noticed something large and stagnant in the grass. Cautiously getting out, the driver approached and spotted three bloodied, motionless bodies lying face down in the tall grass. So at this point, they are freaked out. They race out of the park to report the scene, and soon, the lush, quiet wildlife of Gitche Manitou was home to the most disturbing crime that that area had ever seen. Within hours, the surrounding towns in both Iowa and South Dakota were notified of the news of this brutal slaying. So it goes without saying that the massive shock of this rolled through the quiet community quickly, which normally didn't see crimes of this magnitude. There was no car at the site of the body, so police sent out an all-points bulletin for Stewart's dark blue Chevrolet van, which was registered to his mom, Marion, because they believed that the car was stolen by the perpetrators. The victims were positively identified by the police using their wallets and ID cards, which were still in their pockets. Stuart Beatty, Dana Beatty, and Michael Hadrath had been left face down on the ground where they were spotted by the passing motorist. Blood dotted the ground around them and it appeared from the tracks in the grass that they had been shot elsewhere before their bodies were dragged to their final resting places and left in a ditch on the Iowa side. A short distance away was the abandoned fire pit and campsite still arranged for the gathering the night before. A guitar was even propped up against a tree, and authorities recovered half a discarded joint, you know, a marijuana cigarette, if you will. And then Roger lay at the campsite on the South Dakota side in the same fashion as the others. The bodies of the four young men were taken to a mortuary in Rock Rapids, Iowa for identification, as well as notification of next of kin and for their autopsies. And one by one, police visited the homes of the boys to break the news to their parents. The park was sealed off for investigation as police grappled with how to proceed because they were just so confused as to who would have murdered these innocent boys and why. And really, I mean, the only link that detectives seemed to have to this crime at the time was Stewart's car, which was still unaccounted for. Exactly. I mean, they really didn't have anything at this point until later that fateful Sunday, 13-year-old Sandra Chesky walked into the police station with information about this attack. And it was first-hand information because she was the only survivor. 
Sandra relayed the portion of the story that the police already surmised, that the five of them had headed out to a quiet area of the park near the Big Sioux River to hang out by the campfire. About 20 minutes after they arrived, she said that they began hearing rustling noises and snapping branches as if someone were walking in the vicinity of the site, but it was so dark beyond the glow of the campfire that they couldn't pinpoint where the noises were coming from. So it's like they just, they hear these branches breaking and it almost feels like someone is watching them or sneaking up on them, but they just can't figure out where it's coming from. Which is like everybody who is camping or hanging out in the woods is worst nightmare. It is, yeah. I mean, every time I've gone camping, if I hear one you know, branch break or one stick break, I'm like, who the fuck is there, you know? Yeah, and at first they're like, oh, maybe it's an animal. It's probably not a big deal, but these noises continue. Right. So after they each take a few hits from a joint, 17-year-old Roger and 18-year-old Stuart decided that they're going to go investigate, setting off into the brush to determine the source of the rustling sounds. Now, Sandra remembered her boyfriend Roger giving her a quick kiss before walking toward the wilderness, with the two of them calling out variations of, Hello? Who's there? And who's out there? Then, without warning, the sound of gunshots ricocheted through the stillness of the late autumn night. Roger fell to the ground immediately and lay motionless. Stuart had been wounded but not killed and cried out, quote, I've been shot! It hurts! It hurts! It was then that three unknown men emerged from the darkness and approached the teens, identifying themselves as narcotics officers, catching them in the act of smoking weed. 15-year-old Michael had apparently tried to reason with them in that moment, but was shot for doing so, leaving just Stewart's 13-year-old brother Dana and 13-year-old Sandra without injury so far. The three men were referring to each other as the boss, Hatchet Face, and JR during this time, which Sandra remembered. At this point, Stewart and Michael were greatly injured, but alive and frozen by the fire pit with Dana while the boss took Sandra, who was the only girl, with him, tying up her hands and loading her into his car. She noted as many details about the vehicle as she could to the police, which included that the car was a brown, older model Chevrolet truck, and noticed that it was affixed with a gun rack on the back window. The windshield was sporting a noticeable crack, and she said that the glove compartment was unlike any other that she'd seen. Which is great that there are these very specific details of this car. It's not just like, oh, it was just a black car. That's it. It's like she knows that there's a crack in the windshield and a gun rack on the back window. Very smart to, to even through, you know, the fear of being taken that she's noticing these little details. Absolutely. So as he led her into the truck, the boss told Sandra that the boys would be fine in a few hours and that they had just been shot with tranquilizer guns. As they drove off, Sandra stole one final look back at them, seeing Roger still crumpled on the ground, remember Roger is her boyfriend, and Stuart, Michael, and Dana lined up in front of the two other men who were still wielding their guns. And that would be the last time that she saw any of the boys. After what felt like hours of driving around in circles, the boss pulled into what appeared to be an abandoned farmhouse. So Sandra didn't have any idea where they were at this point because she didn't know if they were driving in circles, if they were actually putting down distance. And that's probably what 
the boss was trying to do was was co- confuse her and make sure she couldn't remember the location they were at. You know what I mean? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So she she had no idea, but all she remembered was that she saw a large red tank of gasoline outside of this farmhouse. So that was like a specific memory attached to this farmhouse that she thought, okay, there's a tank of gas outside the farmhouse. That's all I can really discern about this entire situation. So the boss's two accomplices eventually pulled up in Stuart's stolen van, but there was no sign of any of the boys. JR then grabbed a terrified Sandra from the van and sexually assaulted her as the other two men watched nearby. The men tried to get her to go with them into the farmhouse, but she put up such a fight that they gave up and put her back in the truck. Sandra learned later that the boss had told JR and Hatchet Face that he was going to take her to a private place to kill her. But instead, Sandra remembers him telling her that she was too young to get caught up in a drug bust. So as they drove away from the farm later, Sandra informed the man of the fact that she was only 13 years old, which apparently totally shocked him. And with that, he told her that he would help her get out of this, meaning out of being in trouble for being around marijuana since he was claiming to be this narcotics officer. You know what's really weird about this story is just how fucking dorky these guys are. Like, they they think they're in a movie or something calling themselves the boss and hatchet face and JR. Like, who the fuck do you think you are? Yeah, like, losers. Like, yeah, complete and, morons. And taking that in, like, oh, you guys are smoking weed out here. I'm going to shoot you. Like, And then what? I'm going to sexually assault a 13-year-old. Like, Literally, what? what is wrong with you? So throughout the horrors of that evening, Sandra remained very calm and even keeled, which is something that police later credited with saving her life. Apparently eliciting sympathy from her captor, the boss asked Sandra for her address and took her home. Though he did make her vow not to report what had happened that evening, she was dropped on her driveway in the middle of the night, shaken but alive, and prepared to tell the truth about what happened to her and her friends if she needed to, depending on how the boys were doing. Because remember, she thinks that... They're They're, alive because that's what she was told. Exactly. Yeah, we just shot them with tranquilizer guns. They're going to be fine in a few hours. But obviously, that was not the case. But since she didn't know that yet, back at home and only starting to process what had just happened to her, Sandra tried to lay down and steady herself first, believing what the boss had told her, that her friends and her boyfriend were hit with a tranquilizer gun and that the effects would soon wear off. But when day broke and she hadn't heard from any of the boys... She began to worry and knew that she needed to report the men that she believed were three rogue officers abusing their power. She reported to the police station to tell them the shocking story, and they were relieved to have a link between the murderers and the victims that they had already uncovered. But Sandra then had to bear the news from the police that none of the four boys with her that night made it out of Gitchy Manitou alive. It was only then that she realized the true scope of what had happened and what she had so narrowly escaped. At first, her story seemed fantastical. Like Sandra recalls that the officers were being skeptical of her retelling of the sequence of events, saying, quote, The police weren't mean to me. They just thought that I knew the names of the people that did it, and they wanted them. They didn't want to do all this driving around because in their minds, they thought, 
Why would they let her go? Why did only one of the three rape her? To them, it seemed unbelievable. So after giving investigators every detail that she could remember about the night prior, Sandra was placed in protective custody because police were worried that the men would try to retaliate against her for telling her side of the story, and that possibly they would be looking to finish the job. But unfortunately for Sandra, the most secure place for her to be housed was actually a juvenile detention center, so that's where she remained for a little while. Meanwhile, theories ran rampant on a national scale from people within the investigation as well as spectators on the outside of it. Even the police officers seemed to have an opinion on Sandra and her story, with, like Heath said, police feeling confident that Sandra knew who the men were and just weren't telling. Though her story never changed and her conviction never wavered, her credibility was called into question because she was so young. Investigators even administered a polygraph test, but she passed it. As funerals for the boys went underway, including a joint funeral for brothers Stuart and Dana, the community mourned their unfathomable loss. Meanwhile, Sandra was put to work racking her brain for every detail she could recall about the men. The lone survivor of such a horrific attack, Sandra was an instant sensation and was dubbed Gitchy Girl by the media. Composite sketches of the men were drawn and distributed, and police scoured the surrounding area for any sign of the brown pickup truck or Stewart's blue van. And then finally, on Monday, November 19, 1973, Stewart's van was recovered parked in a Sioux Falls parking lot. But sadly, there didn't appear to be any distinguishable evidence from within the car. I mean, remember, this is 1973. They can't collect, or they can collect DNA evidence, but they can't test it yet. Right. So they couldn't really do anything, and nobody had said, oh, yeah, I saw this guy that looked like this, drop it off. Like, they just still had nothing. But obviously, it was clear to them that the car was planted in the city where they found it. So Sandra spent day in and day out with detectives who barely seemed to believe what she was alleging, writing down every detail she could remember. And for hours every day after the attack, she drove around in a police cruiser with investigators, searching for that farmhouse that she was taken to in hopes that it would link them back to the murderers. Sandra later remembered feeling so frustrated at the disbelief and lack of support from the officers that she sometimes didn't even look out the window as they tried to find the farmhouse. But then, after days of winding down back roads looking for anything that seemed familiar, she spotted the red gasoline tank that she had seen on the night that she was taken there. So the police headed up the drive toward the rundown house, and Sandra's jaw dropped. The boss, driving his brown Chevrolet truck with the cracked windshield and the gun rack, passed right by them, going the opposite direction. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. 
Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volix XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players. 
by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face. But now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. So after days of very little rest for investigators or Sandra, police took her to a farm property just northwest of Sioux Falls. Acting on a tip about a farm property that contained a dilapidated house, police brought Sandra to scope it out. Spotting the boss pass by in his truck, Sandra screamed. One officer pulled Sandra from the car and the other sped off after the pickup truck. When he finally caught up to him and pulled him over, The driver remained calm, feigning ignorance and identifying himself as Alan Fryer. Alan was brought in for questioning immediately and admitted to knowing the Gitche Manitou Preserve very well, even saying that it was his favorite hunting destination. But he claimed, of course, that he hadn't been there that night and that he didn't know anything about the murders. However, finally trusting Sanders' account of what happened, police didn't buy what he was saying and a brief look into Alan's criminal history raised even more suspicions for investigators. 29-year-old Alan Fryer was one of 13 children and worked as a farmhand at various farms in the Sioux Falls area. Five years prior, Alan and his younger brother David were caught transporting stolen vehicles between Minnesota and Iowa. And in addition to the stolen cars, 24-year-old David also had a violent felony charge on his criminal record. He had been arrested for shooting at people with a shotgun out of the window of his car, but he had yet to kill anyone. That's just like such bullshit. I know, what a, what a absolute moron this guy is. Truly. And honestly, just a menace. But then police discovered that another of their brothers, 21 year old James, went by the nickname JR, which is a name that Sandra had already told them about hearing on the night of her kidnapping. Now, JR was known for his social ineptitude and for being odd and off-putting, of course, frequently making people around him feel uncomfortable, you don't say. And the farm, which was where the farmhouse was located, was one of the farms that Alan had worked on. So this made a really convincing case for their involvement, but police knew that they needed Sandra to confirm their identities. 
So police placed the three brothers along with a myriad of other men in a lineup and Sandra was immediately able to pluck out Alan, who she knew as the boss, David or Hatchet Face, and James or JR. Sandra recalled, quote, I had no problem picking them out. It was that one, that one, and that one. I never hesitated for a moment. You just won't ever forget someone's face during something like that. It becomes the face in your nightmare. I wanted to point them out. I wanted them to be arrested. I wanted them to pay. On November 30th, 1973, Alan, David, and James Fryer were officially arrested for the murders of Stuart, Michael, Dana, and Roger. So aside from the question of the motive behind the killing of four innocent boys, another burning question remained. Why was Sandra spared? An agent with the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation who assisted heavily on the case speculated, quote, Alan wasn't the brightest bulb. After the boys were gunned down and it was just him and her in the truck, I think he became aware of her as a person rather than just somebody standing out in the woods. She remained calm and they talked and he couldn't bring himself to kill her. And I do agree with that. I think also I'm sure part of the motive of taking her away from the scene was to sexually assault her and then maybe find when he found out how young she was and realized that she was being calm and was, you know, dealing with the situation that they were just going to let her go. I think that's probably why she was the one out of the rest of them that was removed from the area. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no question that they knew exactly what they were going to do with Sandra. Yeah. Whether or not, you know, they later decided to kill her, which they obviously didn't. But uh, yeah, I think there was a lot of motive there in the beginning. Totally. And former law enforcement officer and Sandra's friend, Kevin Kunkel, theorized, quote, These guys went pheasant hunting that day, but didn't get any pheasants. So they went deer hunting, but couldn't find any deer. That's when they decided to hunt the one thing they could find, humans. The men were separated and questioned with investigators hoping that they would be less willing to lie for each other if they were alone. Now, the boss, so Alan, had been truthful about one aspect of that night. The men did indeed go hunting, but when they came upon the group of teenagers, they had pivoted to shooting the teens for sport. Really reminiscent of the book, The Most Dangerous Game. Oh yeah, it really is. So separately, David quickly fell apart and began pointing fingers at his brothers, hoping for a lighter sentence. And by David's testimony, Alan was the first to start shooting, which Sandra corroborated as well. David watched as Alan raised his shotgun, hitting Roger, and following suit, James started firing indiscriminately, hitting, but not yet killing, Stuart. After Alan left with Sandra in the truck, JR and David climbed into Stuart's van, putting his brights on, and then David claimed that he watched as James shot Dana, then Stuart, and then Michael. David admitted to shooting Stuart, but said that he was already dead and on the ground when that happened, but who knows if that's true. David's conviction moved at a shockingly swift pace after his admission of guilt, and on February 12th, 1974, so just three months after the slangs, David pled guilty to three counts of murder and one count of manslaughter. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, 
but shockingly, Alan and James both pled not guilty. But what was even more shocking was that they managed to escape from jail shortly after that. While being held in the Lyon County Jail in Rock Rapids, Iowa, which is about a 45-minute drive from Sioux Falls, Alan was able to weaken the lock on his cell in the middle of the night. After pulling a wire from his mattress, Alan managed to snake the lock and wrench it open. He then sneakily retrieved the keys to James's cell and let him out as well. Insanity. So crazy. And then the two fled the jail, stealing a nearby car and heading west. And according to the jail, there had been an attendant on duty that night, but somehow the escape had gone undetected until 8 a.m. that day. Tuesday, June 18, 1974, which was hours after they escaped. Now, aside from the obvious risk the Fryer brothers posed to the public, police were concerned that Sandra was in legitimate danger, thinking that they could be coming back for her to retaliate. So Sandra remembers just being absolutely terrified, and Sioux Falls police established 24-hour armed patrol outside of her family's home just to protect her. Though little did they know, the men were just trying to flee and likely start anew. So after leaving Rock Rapids, Iowa, the brothers made it to Wyoming, but not without incident. When they reached Hill City, South Dakota, they hit a female pedestrian in a crosswalk and just sped off causing more chaos and tragedy in their wake. In Newcastle, Wyoming, they stole another car, but following a dramatic high-speed chase, Allen and James were finally apprehended a day later in Gillette, Wyoming, which is over 500 miles or 800 kilometers from where they escaped. So these absolute knuckleheads did all of this in a very short period of time. I mean, they, they hit a person at a crosswalk with their car, they stole two cars, and they made it 500 miles away. You know what they say, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. So on December 30th, 1974, James, like David, was convicted of three charges of first-degree murder and one charge of manslaughter. And for those wondering, prosecutors declined to pursue rape charges against James in order to, you know, spare Sandra the pain of a fourth trial, which was both frustrating and a relief for her. And on May 20th, 1974, Allen was convicted of four counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to four consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, which was mostly thanks to Sandra's unwavering testimony. Now, with the men finally behind bars permanently, Sandra was left to pick up the pieces and move forward with her life, but she greatly struggled to do so under the weight of the trauma that she had endured. She went back to attending school as usual, but said that she felt alienated by her peers. When she should have been commended for her bravery and heroism, she was instead the victim of a media firestorm. Critics came after her choice to be hanging out with teenage boys and for smoking marijuana. And Sandra claims many students that she went to school with were instructed by their parents to stay away from her. That's so messed up. Like, it's sick. It's absolutely not her fault that she was, you know, hanging out with her friends and her boyfriend at the time and something like this happened. Yeah, absolutely. But everybody was treating her like it was her fault and that she made poor choices and this happened to her because of it, which is just such victim blaming. Like it's it's so disgusting. Yeah, she's a she was a 13-year-old girl. Come on. 
Well, eventually, the speculation and judgment just became too much for her, and she dropped out of school altogether. Sandra remembers feeling, quote, horrible, ashamed, alone. I felt all of that. And on top of the shame that she felt, she said that she suffered from severe survivor's guilt, saying, quote, I felt ashamed because I lived. I should have been with the boys. As we know, 50 years ago, mental health services were, of course, not what they are today, and Sandra was just expected to resume her childhood as normal. She wasn't offered therapy or any sort of social service or support, and as life around her seemed to resume, Sandra said, quote, For years I had nightmares, and my mom would crawl into bed with me when I was 15 years old still. And although her mom was very supportive, she worked a lot and Sandra didn't have much of a relationship with her stepfather who lived at home with them. So she just felt really alone in this tragedy. But Sandra remembers fondly that she was embraced by the families of the victims. She said that her boyfriend Roger's family, as well as the babies, quote, wrapped me in their arms afterward. She and Lynette Hadrath, Michael's younger sister, also formed a supportive relationship as they had to testify against David at his parole hearing, which was eventually denied. Thank God. Only in the last decade or so has Sandra felt empowered enough to speak about what had happened to her. She credits her family with that development, saying, quote, My grandchildren are going to Google Gitchy Manitou, and they're going to see my name and read horrific stuff that they don't know about. I have nieces who are 12, they're going to be 13, and they're pretty smart these days. I just don't want them to find it and be shocked and upset. I want them to know that it was a huge tragedy and that grandma wasn't doing anything bad. And nobody deserved it out there what happened. We weren't drugging, we were just going out for a night, and it was so wrong. In 2016, Sandy and Phil Hammond, teachers who were born and raised in Sioux Falls, published a book called Gitchy Girl, the survivor's inside story of the mass murders that shocked the heartland. Sandy and Phil worked closely with Sandra to do justice to both her story and the lives of the boys, especially since Phil had been a childhood friend of Michael's. Sandy said of Sandra, quote, even after all that she's been through, Sandra is one of the most positive people I've ever met. Sandra stayed in the Sioux Falls area, married, had children, and now has grandchildren. And all three of the Fryer brothers are still serving their life sentences at the Iowa State Penitentiary in Fort Madison, Iowa. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And on Tuesday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. Just such a senseless story. Thank you again to Amber for suggesting it. I do love when there is a survivor in the story, but it's so sad to think that everybody else, Michael, Roger, Stuart, and Dana, were all just hanging out, trying to have a good time around a campfire in November. And senselessly murdered for no reason. Just disgusting. So thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. Um, We're going to have some bonus episodes for you guys this month. As always, if you want them, we're almost at 100 full-length ad-free bonus episodes about true crime 
cases that we don't cover on Going West. We leave the U.S. a lot on that show. That's called Real Crime. Yeah, we do a lot of international cases. Yeah, but also sometimes we do U.S. We do a lot of Canadian cases as well. Um, And we just did a really fun one the other day that we called ICU. And that was just kind of a bunch of fun, true, scary stories that we found online that are kind of like somewhat true crimey, but not true crime cases just to mix it up a little bit. If you want to listen to that one and almost 100 other ones, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Apple subscriptions or on patreon.com slash going west podcast. And again, I just wanted to mention that if you do have a recommendation for a case, make sure you email us. That's goingwestpodcast at gmail.com. That is the place that we're going to see those requests. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>